Thank you very much. So let's move on to this difficult situation where when we look up the Old Testament passage that we've been indicated, it's not word for word. This morning when we sort of tried to define what a quotation was, one of the suggestions was the word for word replication of that passage. But often they're not word for word. And then we have to ask why not and what's the possible explanation? If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, you'll see there an example of an Old Testament quotation. It's signaled by the introduction. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That passage is then explained, verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first in the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same, that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So that's the passage. Where does it come from? You have a look in the margin. Psalm 68, verse 18. Turn up Psalm 68, verse 18, because that's what we're supposed to do when we see these things. Uh, we want to look at the context as well, but for now we just look at the words of the quotation. Psalm 68, <clears throat> verse 18. And that says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, Thou hast received gifts for men. That's the quote, isn't it? It's recognizable. The form is there. The, the words are there. Can you see the, the difference, though? Right. <clears throat> so if I put it up like this. Right. When he ascended up on high, okay, thou hast ascended on high, he led captivity captive, Thou hast led captivity captive, pretty much word for word, exact. Bearing in mind, it's going from Hebrew to English, from Hebrew to Greek and Greek to English, and we're comparing just the English. <laughs> but now, look, there's a difference. He gave gifts here in Ephesians, and he received gifts in the psalm. That's not a subtle difference. That's a big difference. One is giving, the other is receiving. They're sort of opposites, aren't they? Yeah. So how would you explain that difference? So let me ask you to explain it, or at least suggest explanations that others might give to that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, now that's a very interesting insight. He said it kind of follows that if you receive gifts for men, you're going to give them away to men. Really interesting. So one explanation is that that change is deliberate. Drawing out an implicit aspect of the psalm. 
On the other extreme, somebody might say, ah, but the Apostle Paul just misquoted it. He quoted it from memory, and he didn't get it right. All right? But there's a, another explanation, which is beloved of uh, our community, which I think is wrong. <laughs> and I'm daring to point this out. And that is, ah, the Apostle Paul is not quoting the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is what he's quoting. Have you ever heard that explanation? You know, it hasn't come to Texas? Well, I can't believe that. <laughs> because it's mainstream in the rest of the world. <laughs> it's the normal explanation that when a passage in the New Testament is clearly a quotation, but it's different, the explanation is it's the Septuagint. So if you haven't heard of that explanation, you will come across it when you read our literature and when you hear talks. And what I want to point out is why that's wrong. Uh, and <clears throat> you can judge for yourself. Well, I think we had that discussion some, some years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hobby horse of mine, okay. <laughs> so let's for now talk about this LXX, the Septuagint, the 70, the translation. That's what it's claimed, the translation of the Greek, or the Greek Bible at the time of Jesus. So the argument goes that there, there was a Greek version of the Old Testament that the Hebrew had been translated into Greek. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament was the Bible of the New Testament. Right? that the apostles used it, that Jesus quoted it. And the driver for that is to say, yes, but look, those quotes are seldom the same as the Hebrew that we have. Oh, it's the Septuagint. Can you see any difficulty with that? <clears throat> okay, let's have a look at the Septuagint. This is an English translation of the Septuagint. What do you notice? <laughs> it's the same as the Hebrew. So that's not an explanation. And very often that's the case. In fact, when people say they quoted the Septuagint, they don't seem to have looked up the Septuagint because it's just not the same as the New Testament anyway. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. So that blanket explanation, that quote in the Septuagint, I think doesn't actually hold water even when you simply just look up that passage. We're still left with having to understand what that difference is. <clears throat> now, the explanation already given is an interesting one. And I think I just think that that's the one we need to have forefront in our mind. If the Holy Spirit causes the Apostle Paul to take an Old Testament quotation, change it slightly, not to contradict it, not to undermine it, but to explain or expand or draw out, then we can have no quibble with that. God can change his words. He's not unreliable, but look, Gil has made, I think, he's got his 
put his uh, finger absolutely on the point. See, if you go to Psalm 68 and ask, what's this all about? It says, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that Yahweh might dwell. What could that be referring to? When we look into it, I think, we'll find that it's linked to the Levites. And do you remember how the Levites were taken? The Levites were taken instead of the firstborn. And then God took the Levites and he gave them to the high priest to serve the people. So these Levites were received by God and given as a gift to Aaron to minister on behalf of the people. I wonder then if Gil is absolutely right to say that he received gifts for men that he might give those Levites to Aaron to minister on behalf of the sins of the people. Is that possible When we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we can see what the gifts are. Ephesians chapter 4 verse uh, verse 8 is the quotation, he gave gifts unto men. And then verses 9 and 10 give the explanation of ascending and descending. They say it's actually speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ in fullness of his death and resurrection. And now look at verse 11. And gave some Apostles, some prophets. The gift are the men. The gift he's giving are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. These are the gifts he's giving. The men are the gifts. He's not saying he gave the gift of prophecy or the gift of, uh, of preaching. The men are the gift. He gave some apostles and so on. So the people are the gift. Therefore, when he gave gifts unto men, he gave these spirit-filled chosen ones to the ecclesia for the work of building up the ecclesia. So, in that way, God received uh, these men instead of the firstborn. That's what the Levites were. They were instead of the firstborn. He took them. He said, everything that opens the womb is mine. The Levites are mine, but I will take the Levites instead of the firstborn. But now he's going to give those Levites, as it were, back to the people to do a certain work. So what you've got there is an exact uh, match, really. This, This is not a contradiction. This is just the two aspects of the cycle of receiving and giving on behalf of men. Now, that would normally take some working out. Uh, you know, you'd have to puzzle over that and, and wonder, why is that there? Why is there a difference? So what I wanted to suggest you to remember when you come across this thing is that that difference is there for a purpose. That change has been made to make us think 
and there should be a, an expositional explanation for it rather than saying, ah, he's not quoting the Hebrew, he's quoting something else. So I want to pursue that quoting something else issue now and see if you'll understand why it's from. Here's another example. Ephesians 5 verse 14. Please have a look at it. Ephesians 5 verse 14. Tell me where it comes from. Hard to know, isn't it? But it's, it's, it is a quotation. It's, Wherefore he saith. What was that? Isaiah 60. Okay, let's put up Isaiah 60. Does that look like the same passage? Wherefore he saith, awake. Ah, can't see awake there. Thou that sleepest. Can't see sleep there. Ah, oh, there's the arise. Arise from the dead. I can't see the dead there. And Christ shall give thee light. Okay, I can see light. So the only common words between those two passages is arise and light. Everything else has been changed. Explanation? Ah, it's quoting the Septuagint. <laughs> Let's look at the Septuagint. Well, it's sort of similar to the Hebrew, isn't it? It's got Jerusalem in there for some reason. Where did that come from? Thy light is come. Yeah, light is come. The glory, actually the Septuagint is the same as the Hebrew <laughs> and different from the New Testament quote. So it's, it's still not quoting the Septuagint. So we still have a problem. Where does that quotation come from? Has anybody got uh, an answer or suggestion? 46.19? Isaiah 26, what does that say? Isaiah 26.19, it says... Okay. Isaiah 26.19, Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise, awake, and sing. So awake from the dead, you can locate that in an Isaiah passage. But... That Isaiah passage doesn't have light in it, does it? No. I think what you're trying to suggest, though, is something very interesting. That maybe two or more passages have been brought together. So another possible explanation for a quotation that apparently doesn't match exactly something in the Old Testament could be, could it be, hypothesis. That what's happening is that the New Testament, through the Spirit, is bringing passages together into one, like, really condensed summary statement. I have a, a suggestion as to that. Now, that Isaiah 26 one I hadn't thought of. I had thought of Daniel chapter 12. Nathan already mentioned that this afternoon, Daniel chapter 12, which talks about... Uh, sleep of death. Uh, many that are sleeping in the dust of the earth shall awake. Awake thou that sleepest sort of catches the Daniel passage, but it's also 
you know, arising from the dead is what they do. Maybe there's three passages, I haven't thought about that, maybe there's three passages captured in one reference. So rather than dismiss the difference as, well, don't read too much into it, you know, uh, don't fuss. <laughs> what we should be thinking about is, what's going on here? Let's take time, let's pour over this. In fact, taking any one of these verses would be a whole Bible class, a whole discussion, yeah? Right. So the arising would fit with that, wouldn't it? Yeah. And then later on, at the end yeah. of the chapter, the, the comment is made by her, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him shine like the sun or be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. So notice then what we're doing. What we're saying is that this New Testament, wherefore he saith, may not be saying... In one place, in one prophet, in one verse, you'll find these words. But rather, this is a summary or a compilation, a composite quotation, where two or three passages are brought together into one crystallized statement. Do you get that point now? We don't often talk about this. We don't usually even address these differences. We tend to say, here the Apostle Paul is quoting from the psalm. Uh, We don't turn up the psalm. We don't note that it's significantly different from the passage we've just referred to. And we certainly don't stop to try to explain uh, why that should be different. And yet, and yet, I think 80%, 80%, of New Testament quotations differ from what we think the source is. So it's not a small matter, it's not a trivial matter, it's a major feature of the New Testament which we haven't started to unpack. And the reason is because we say, ah, it's quoting the Septuagint. Now let's just think what we mean by the Septuagint and what dangers there are. This is the issue. The New Testament quotation sometimes differs from a literal Greek translation of the Hebrew Masoretic text. So in other words, the Masoretic text is quoted or or rendered in Greek. That's our New Testament. The New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, but the words differ. That's the issue. The words differ. If you say, look, I want a literal translation of the Hebrew into the Greek, and then I'll believe it's a quotation. It's an approximation, it looks like. It's not an exact rendering of those words. It's almost a paraphrase. It's not really an exact translation. Possible explanations. 
And this is what suggested that the New Testament writers were quoting a different Hebrew manuscript. What would you think about that? No, they weren't quoting the Old Testament that we have. They were quoting a different version of the Old Testament. Well put. In other words, if that's true, the Bible we have is not the Bible they were using. What does that say about the Bible we've got? It's not the real one. So, you know, if that's the case, we're in trouble. Our Hebrew Bible is not the Hebrew Bible of the New Testament. So, you know, we're warned. Well, the problem is, let's come back to that point. Yeah. I would just make the point is that we've never heard um, because the Jews, the Jewish temples, you know, if we have like the Hebrew Bible, if there was a different one, we would have heard of one. But when yeah. they went back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and yeah. later, um, this was sort of like an imaginary Bible. That's right. So, so there is no evidence for a different Bible. We'd have to invent a different Bible to say they were quoting from it. Even if you said, you know, the inspired New Testament is quoting from that, so it's okay, that might make the quotation okay, but it still leaves us in the dark as to what Bible uh, it was using, and we don't have it anyway, so we haven't got the right one. There's another explanation. The New Testament writers were quoting not the Old Testament, but a Greek translation of the Old Testament that either gets it wrong or uses that imaginary different Hebrew text. Right? You see that point? So we've got a problem. If the Septuagint is different from the Hebrew, and the New Testament quotes the Septuagint, not the Hebrew, what's that telling us about the Hebrew Bible? It's not inspired, because the inspired record would rather quote a Greek translation than the original, well, we think the original, but maybe it's not anymore. So you see, just trying to explain why saying the New Testament quotes the Septuagint is, is not a good explanation. It opens up some real doubts. Those arguing for theistic evolution love the Septuagint because they want to argue that we are being too precise. We are asking too much of the accuracy of the Bible. It's the ideas, the general ideas that count, not the actual literal word-for-word word revelation. Right? So, you know, you, you've got a, an issue there. That's why I'm talking about it, because it comes up now in other contexts. See? So why don't we just use the King James? <laughs> well, we still have a difference, even when you're reading the King James. So we've got to explain it. So the implications of that second one is 
Either we don't have the same Hebrew Bible as the Lord and the Apostles, or the New Testament writers were using an uninspired, erroneous translation of the Hebrew. Now, would the Holy Spirit, you know, would the, would the Apostles, with the Holy Spirit, use the Good News Bible to prove anything? It wouldn't. We come back to what must be the explanation that that change is deliberate, purposeful, and meaningful. And our task is to try and find out what that change, what that difference signifies. Now, if you, if you grasp what I'm trying to say there, and it may be a bit clumsily put, but if you can grasp that, you'll understand why I'm you know, put this session on the program because obviously you need to think about it and reflect on it, but realize the implications of saying, now, I know brethren say, ah, oh, look, if the Holy Spirit quotes the Greek, that's okay because the Holy Spirit has decided it's okay. Okay to quote something different. In other words, it's saying, in effect, look, the first century Jews, they weren't reading Hebrew, they were reading Greek, a Greek translation. So that was their Bible, and the Holy Spirit is directing the apostles to quote their Bible. Therefore, it doesn't really matter then if it's accurate or not. So what's the force of the quotation? Because it doesn't prove it, does it? you just got to work that one through. What is their Septuagint then that we're talking about? And one of the problems is that we talk about it as if it was a thing that existed in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was one thing, and that's not the case. All the uh, evidence suggests that it wasn't the case. I have put together a folder of articles which uh, for Ryan to, to share, you know, including the tapes, uh, the, 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 the slides. But in that folder are a couple of articles on the Septuagint. One written by Brother John Adey, who is a Hebrew scholar who's done his PhD at Cambridge University on Hebrew and who has gone into great detail into these differences between the New Testament and the Old Testament and gives guidance and advice on how to approach that and also explains what the Septuagint is and is not. I'll just give you a sort of flavor for that, but it's the sort of article you need to you know, take away and, and read carefully and think about and follow because it's not easy. But look, Oregon in the 3rd century AD was pondering over exactly the same question that we're looking at tonight. This question of the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament quotes is something which is... 2,000 years old almost, right? And he was pondering that difference between the Hebrew and the Greek. This comes from a website dedicated to the study of the Septuagint. And this is what he did. He set out in six columns the Hebrew, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, another Greek translation of the Hebrew, another Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew, 
and another Greek translation of the Hebrew. So in his day, there were five other Greek translations, or four other Greek translations. So when, when we say, oh, oh, that's the Septuagint, what is the Septuagint? It's the translation of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus used. Is it? Where did it come from? Uh, or was that the one they used? Or was that the one they used? Or was that the one they used? I mean, where did these translations come from? By the way, his six columns have perished. So nobody quite knows what the differences were between those different columns. And nobody knows which was the closest to the Hebrew. It says this, that Oregon was a very careful scholar, but he did not observe modern editorial conventions. He seems to have made a compilation of these different Greek translations, uh, emerged them, right? Uh, he brought them together, and he edited them. He edited them. Because it was realized that the earliest of these Greek translations was significantly different from the Hebrew and ought to be brought closer to the Hebrew. In other words, they revised their translations. Right? So like they had the revised version, the revised standard version, the new revised standard version, they kept on revising that Greek to try and improve on it, even after the New Testament. So what we've got, which is printed today and called the Septuagint, is not one of those versions. It's a compilation. In fact, it's Codex Vaticanus. It's the Catholic 4th century, 5th century codex, which includes some apocryphal works and some Christian commentary. Now, hang on, I thought we said it was the Bible Jesus used. It can't be, can it? What, what is called the Septuagint today clearly isn't the, the version of the Hebrew translation that might have been extant in those days. So this is what they say. The term Septuagint could refer to any historical stage of the Greek translation, a strict Purest use of the word would allow the term to be used only of the earliest, probably unrecoverable translation. In other words, if the New Testament was quoting from this version, we can't know because nobody's got it. <laughs> it hasn't survived. So it really doesn't help. Okay. Look at this thing called the Septuagint today, and this is what you find. It leaves out one-eighth of Jeremiah. It leaves one-sixth of the book of Job out and adds an ending that's not in the Hebrew Bible. It leaves out half of Esther. And it's got lots of mistakes in it. If that was the Bible around at the time of the apostles, would they have been quoting from it? And if it's not, 
what was, because we don't have it. So the evidence that there was such a thing as the Septuagint at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, from which the apostles quoted, evaporates when you start to look closely at it. Here's an example then of, uh, from Brother John Eddy. He's written an article on this, and that would be in the pack that, uh, that uh, I hope you'll be able to get. Here are two quotations then, uh, of two passages of Scripture. Psalm 40, verse 6, Mine ears hast thou opened, when it's rendered in the New Testament, a body hast thou prepared me. Two quite different ideas. Now, though I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's the, that's the Psalm 40. It's quoted, in, it's quoted in Hebrews. But there's a significant change. What's the explanation? Read the article. <laughs> Can anybody see any sort of route that might take us to a good explanation? Why would the spirit-guided apostle change, mine ear hast thou prepared, to a body hast thou prepared me? Well, that would be the question, not, ah, they're quoting the Septuagint. The The body of Christ. So what is this based on, would you suggest, mine ear hast thou opened? Well, you remember the, the, the slave who said, I love my master and I want to stay with him. He had his ear pierced to the door of the house. Now, do you think the owner could just take his ear and pierce that and leave the body? In fact, what is pinned to the door is his whole body, isn't it? Yeah. And it seems that that might be the emphasis in Hebrews because Hebrews is talking about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself. He was a whole burnt offering. It was his body that was crucified. He gave his body because he loved his master and wanted to serve him forever. The Lord Jesus then had an open ear. His ear was digged. His ear was open. He was committed to serving his father In so doing, he gave his body. It's not really such a strange thing then to see a development of thought between the Old Testament passage which which picks on one particular aspect of that servant's devotion to his master, which is his desire to be seen to be attached to his master's house by his ear, In other words, the Lord Jesus would listen for his father's voice to do his father's will. But that included giving himself wholly to his master's service. Does that make sense? I I, I think that is where we should be looking for an explanation and not saying, ah, the difference doesn't matter, or don't be too particular, don't be so fussy, or... Ah, but it's quoting the Septuagint, which didn't exist anyway. 
Well, if it did, we don't know because we haven't got a copy of it. All right. So John, Brother John Ady says this, right? That, in fact, there's evidence that what we call the Septuagint today was edited in the light of the New Testament quotation. In other words, it's a post-biblical document which was made to conform to the change in the New Testament, where it is the same, rather than being a pre-Christian translation that was quoted in the New Testament. Did you get that point? Okay, well, the assumption is, you know, cause and effect. The assumption is, here's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, different from the Hebrew, either got it wrong or quoting a different version, which is then reproduced in the New Testament. In other words, this Septuagint has been quoted into the New Testament. Reverse causality. Here's the New Testament making a different statement, modifying, adding to the Hebrew. The Greek gets edited in the light of the New Testament. That's right. It's the chicken and the egg, right? It's, 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 it's reversed. The order's reversed. And that, uh, Brother John Ady quotes uh, modern scholars who say there's evidence that that post-Christian editing of the document to make it more like the New Testament has taken place. So these are the sort of, so he calls it a Christian insertion derived from the New Testament. So yes, it may be that uh, often this Septuagint thing is closer to the New Testament. Well, why? Not because it was the source of the New Testament, but because it's been edited in the light of the New Testament. All right? I think it's a useless explanation. It diverts us from looking at a scriptural explanation. If we stay within the bounds of our Bibles and ask what's going on here, then we're on safe ground. So that was my suggestion for Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I've got another one, which I think is uh, at least as good, which is there's also uh, an element of Isaiah 26 coming in there. But then you can see, if you, if you sort of break it down like this, you can see that in this quote, there are elements which could have been brought in from other scripture to make this composite quotation. That's, that, if you followed that, um, I'm grateful. <laughs> If you think it was very confusing, that's because I haven't explained it very well. If you've never heard of the Septuagint, you're really going to be uh, uh, confused about it. But if you get it as an explanation, at least you've had a sort of a red flag from me saying, ah, just be careful what's meant now and work that through carefully. And you have some articles to fall back on to, to look it up. It is commonly quoted. It's commonly quoted, not by liberal brethren. It's commonly quoted, even by conservative brethren, as the explanation for the differences in the quotations. But it, I believe it's an unsound argument when you look carefully at it. And there have been articles in the Christophian over the years 
pointing these things out, and I'm not the only one uh, uh, to, to be bothered by this, but John Aidy has been writing about this for you know, 20 years. So it's, uh, it's something that we just think is important to, to bear in mind and uh, to at least consider what we're saying when we say. If you go to the commentaries, go to Wikipedia, they'll universally say the New Testament is quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what you will read. In other words, they are saying that the New Testament isn't bothered about the Hebrew. It's quoting the Greek. And that comes, I believe, from Catholic teaching. Anti-Hebrew teaching. That the Greek New Testament is itself an inspired translation. What they said was this. This was the tradition. That uh, the, the, the king of Egypt... The, the, um, the Greek uh, ruler of Egypt wanted a Greek translation about 200 years BC. He wanted a Greek translation of the Hebrew. So he called for 70 scholars. And he put them in 70 rooms, cells. And they each had to translate from the Hebrew to the Greek. Each of them had to translate the whole thing which they did. And then they compared the 70 translations and they were all identical. So they knew it was inspired by God. And that was the tradition. That's why, and the Catholic Church, has, I believe, has been influenced by that teaching to say, ah, so the New Testament sort of sets the Hebrew Old Testament to one side and prefers to quote this inspired translation, which we happen to have in the Vatican vaults called Codex Vaticanus. That's, that's where that comes from. So you see, it's, it's not neutral. It's not a question of just technical assessment. There is lying behind that some tall story. I mean, do you really believe that story? some tall story about how this came into existence. And you can, you can read about it and uh, think about it. But look, I, if you've got 10 minutes, I'd like to share something with you because there's no explanation for what I'm going to show you now. I've not come across any. I stumbled upon this phenomena, uh, and it's called Seidel's Law. It's not a law. But Seidel, Moshe Seidel, was a Hebrew scholar, and he made an observation. He called it a law, but it's by no means a law, because it's certainly not universal. And what he points out, and these are my examples, not his. He was just looking at Hebrew scriptures. What he pointed out is when one part of the Bible, Hebrew Bible, quotes another part, it inverts part of the quotation. Curious, eh? I stumbled, I, I, I tell you over coffee how I found stuff like this and I searched the web to try and find that anybody written about it. I found this inversion of a quotation. Now here's an example. So what Hebrews say, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, is actually not word for word in the order of Genesis. In fact, it's reversed. Genesis says, 
return from slaughter, priest of the Most High God. The quote says, priest of the Most High God, returning from the slaughter. Can you see that although each line is, is accurate, it switched around the order of the points being made? Isn't that a bit strange, isn't it? Did, have you ever noticed that? That when you've read that, you're reading it sort of upside down? Is that just a, a one-off? When Stephen in Acts chapter 7 quotes from Exodus, he quotes it accurately, except he switches it upside down. Right? That there is that there. That there is that there. All the times I read it, I never, I never realized that there was something going on there. So the quote is exactly, no, it's not. That's the same as that. That's the same as that. But AB becomes BA. Seidel was just talking about the Hebrew scriptures. He's got dozens of examples where you know, the prophets quote from the law where these things are switched around. Almost, you might call them chiastic inversions but separated by most of the Bible, <laughs> Genesis to Hebrew. Something's going on, and I don't think any satisfactory explanation has been given. But it opens up an intriguing question. For example, when the Ten Commandments, or some of them, are, are uh, listed, do you really think Luke got the order wrong, or that he was quoting from memory and he didn't remember them correctly? That change of order is telling us something. What is it telling us? Well, but, you know, there's a question to be answered, isn't there? Let me break into that and ask you, perhaps you'd just like to think about this. Come to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I haven't got this on my list, but it's something that is intriguing. Come to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. Is there anything you notice peculiar about verse 32. They're in pairs, but the pairs are reversed in chronological order. So, for example, time would fail tell me of Gideon and Barak. Which one actually came first? Barak comes before Gideon. Of Samson and Jephthah, which comes first? Jephthah. Of David and Samuel, which comes first. They're reversed. He's not talking chronologically. He's looking backwards. Yeah, it's the order of you looking back. It's not, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> so, these are features, they've been there all the time, and I've never noticed them. Because <laughs> I haven't been looking carefully. I've not, I've not even asked the question. Why would you mention David before Samuel? I mean, everything else in the chapter is chronological. It starts with Abel, goes all the way to Rahab. But when he says time forbids me mentioning these others in detail, he switches them I don't know the explanation, but it's a feature. If you look at the website, you see lots of them. But look, it's, uh, look at this one. This is a quite interesting one. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. 
Is it a quotation from 1 Samuel 4, verse 9? 1 Samuel 4, verse 9 says, Be strong and quit yourselves like men. Well, it's similar. Actually, it's exactly a quotation, but in reverse order, because that's a common feature. It's like that's what Seidel said. This is what happens. When a writer deliberately and consciously quotes, of course, we, we can't have that explanation because if the whole of the Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit, you're not relying upon somebody's conscious knowledge. But it's a quote, look. Quit you like men, be strong. Be strong, quit you like men. It's a chiastic quote. It's an inverted quote. It's tying the quote together even stronger than we might have realized. This is, uh, I mean, Revelation, by the way, is, uh, there's loads of them in Revelation. This is an example. Right? O Lord, who shall not fear thee and glorify thy name? For thou art holy, for all nations shall come and worship thee. All nations shall come and worship thee. O Lord, who shall glorify thy name? It's not accidental. You can't possibly say it's a mistake. Nobody has come up with an explanation. I mean, it's only two people in the world have ever written about it. <laughs> I, I, I've written to one of them and asked him, you know, uh, what's going on here? And he says he doesn't know, and none of his colleagues know either. <laughs> but you know what he said to me? Be careful, because they're quoting the Septuagint. <laughs> So I've yet to go back to him and, uh, and ask him about that. If you think that's strange, it gets stranger. Look, we looked at that today, didn't we? Well, you might think that when it's just a phrase or a sentence, but when it's whole passages, it doesn't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that, I could, I could say that's, that's not a change. It's just, just a way of speaking. That's right, you think you put the comma there. Fair enough. But it still switches that round. Now, this is, um, see where the, yeah. Uh, where shall I stop? Um, okay, look at this, look at this. <laughs> in Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is saying what happens in Acts 9. And when he word for word says what happened, actually, he reverses the order. Look at this one. When Peter says what he just said, Acts chapter 11, <laughs> he says, but I said, Peter said, so he says, but I said, not so, Lord, not so, Lord. But then he doesn't say what he said. <laughs> he says it in reverse order. Something is going on. There is a deliberate reversal of certain elements of the quotation. Why, I do not know. I can see a benefit in it because that would be a great check for the accuracy of a translation or copy, wouldn't it? That if there were these little tricks, <laughs> you could go straight to them and say, did they get that right? Have they been cutting corners? Have they been going from memory? You know, have they been not paying attention? So I'm wondering if one of the issues is is some internal checks to make sure that it's copied down accurately. But also, this suggests that 
it was an accepted form of speech that when you rehearsed what you said, you go back in time over what you said, not as it were go and start from the beginning and repeat what you said. You're actually looking back. It's a bit like a chiasm, you know. You go back in the order that you're looking from rather than jump to the beginning and start again. Something different is going on in people's thinking and expectations, which again, I think, tells us we have to recalibrate our thinking to assess what's going on. I've put on the website about, um, I don't know, about 100 examples of that, right? And I'm interested to collect any others you may come across because, you know, if we, again, if we start collectively looking and thinking about these things, we might actually realize that they serve some other purpose that no one's yet discovered. I take from this, first of all, how careless I have been in reading the scriptures and not noticed that this is happening, you know. Even when I'm going from one chapter to the next, it's happened and I didn't notice it, right? So I take that as a warning to be more careful about reading. Secondly, I, I do think there's a principle involved in this. It's not just a curiosity. There's got to be a reason. We haven't. I mean, you've given us a sort of, uh, a sort of an analogy of what might be happening. But this reversal principle, this inversion, this mirror image principle uh, seems to be operating in the construction of the scriptures. You know, some of us, some of us, you know, like to put things in order. <laughs> That's the way our minds are. Uh, uh, it, it, to see something out of order is, is, and maybe part of it is to make us go, ooh, what's that about? <laughs> I, I put it to you in 10 minutes because I'm fascinated by it. I'm intrigued by it. I never noticed it. Uh, it's not really been commented on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, you know, yeah. And you see it in nature as well, you know, if you like uh, the DNA, uh, the DNA molecule is two strands which uh, twine around each other. You know, there's a reversal principle going on there. There's, a, there's a, a matching, you know, there's like a handshake between these things. Uh, that if both hands were the same, you couldn't have a handshake, could you? You know, the, the passages are sort of holding each other together. Um, so that, that I park that now because I think uh, <laughs> we haven't got an explanation. Um, yeah, if you go back to uh, a slide I showed uh, yesterday about where the, man, where the translations came from, Erasmus, the Greek scholar, a Dutch-Greek scholar, collected together manuscripts that he could find across Europe and compiled them into one New Testament document. It wasn't any existing New Testament. It was a compilation, you know, his best compilation of the New Testament. In other words, there are eight different versions out there. They're all slightly different. Some of them... I've got spelling mistakes. How do you know? Well, we know that's a spelling mistake. Some of them have got a few lines missed out. Seven of them have do one thing, and one of them leaves a line out. Okay, so we know that one's left a line out. 
And so by comparing this, the eight manuscripts, if that's what it was, most of these differences fall away. It, it's obvious what they are. So the, the scholars, if you like, look at the Greek and say, no, look, it's pretty clear. There are a few places where we're not sure what the original was, but mainly we can be sure. And those few places, I think, hardly ever are of any significance in terms of changing the meaning of a passage. So they get these what are called variant readings, and they, they list the variant readings. You can find them on the internet. You can, get a, you can get a whole compendium of variant readings. What variant means is that of the 3,000 New Testament documents, so complete or partially complete, there are some differences in some of the words in some of the passages. Those differences are listed. But there are, if you like, there's a consensus around almost all of the New Testament about what is the, uh, the true document. Now, interestingly, Erasmus, when he translated, uh, when he put together the book of Revelation, only had these few documents, but he did have the Latin translation of the, of the Greek. So the Latin translation took the Greek of the f fifth century, right? In other words, the Greek, uh, that, the, that, the, that the Latin Vulgate translation was translated from was maybe a thousand years older than the documents Erasmus had in his hands. So he, he had the Latin to compare as well. So again, you can say, look, this, this, you put all that together, and this is good. What he didn't have was the end of the book of Revelation. When he looked at his Greek manuscripts and he looked at the Latin, the Latin had a bit more tagged on at the end. So what he did was translate back into Greek from the Latin to provide the last few verses of our book of Revelation. <laughs> so then, you know, he said, well, how valid is that? Well, since... Uh, you know, since the, the 1600s, uh, other Greek manuscripts have come to light. Most recently, Codex Vaticanus, Alexandrius, and Sinaiticus. And this is what the revised diversion scholars say. Ah, we found more ancient, therefore more accurate Greek documents. And we'll use these to improve the English translation, which is where, you know, the NIV, ESV, and all these others come from. What Erasmus used came to be called Textus Receptus, <laughs> the received text. Right? And these other manuscripts are, are supposed to improve it. The difference is small. I mean, that's, my, that's my belief. I've looked into some of it, and it seems to me that the differences are not significant at all. Uh, if you look at them, they don't really change doctrine uh, at all. So in that sense, we can be secure, you know. But the argument that these, these newly found documents must be better because they're older isn't really a strong argument. So when they went, when uh, Tischendorf went to uh, Sinai and he went to the, uh, the monastery there and he, he saw, you know, I don't know, in a bucket of scrap paper, he saw a document and, and it turned out to be an early copy of the New Testament. You think, well, didn't they know? Are they so careless? 
about you know this precious document. How come it survived all those years? And one of the points is this. They survived because they weren't considered, this is the argument, they survived because they weren't considered accurate enough to use for copying. Because if they had been, they would have been worn out by it. And therefore, you know, they wouldn't have survived. What happens with the, the Jewish Bible is that the, the, the scribes copied and copied and copied. And when, when a document got too old, too faded, or too, too brittle to use, they, they buried it. They didn't know what to do with it. What do you do with your old Bibles? Do you throw them out? It's really difficult to throw away a Bible, isn't it? What do you do with it? <laughs> so they buried it. <laughs> and they've dug up some of them. They've dug up some of them, and they dug up fragments from, in Masada from the door of the synagogue underneath the, the stone. They found, you know, sometimes they put them in the loft, and they kept them there. But it looks like some of the documents were set aside because they were people practiced, you see. The scribes learned to write. They practiced writing the Bible. It doesn't mean to say that every document you find is a good version. And those other not-so-good versions tended to be put aside and therefore would have survived. So a version which misses out an eighth of the book of Jeremiah, half of Esther, then what do you and I say? You can't use that. What am I going to do with it? Oh, put it in the attic. <laughs> you know, and it'll survive in the right environment. So the argument that it's old and therefore must be right doesn't wash. And in fact, Codex Vaticanus has got lots of errors in it, lots of obvious mistakes. So again, one has to be very careful of the argument that uh, those manuscripts are more accurate than the ones used to translate the authorized version. But look, compare the authorized version with the revised. I did that. I prepared. I, I bought an interlinear revised authorized version and from the Christophian office. It cost me a lot of money. And I used it uh, for a whole year doing the daily Bible readings. And there was, I gave up because there was no point. There was hardly any difference for the whole year. It just annoyed me intensely that, that the differences were theirs and ands. You know, that they weren't real significant differences. Every so often there'd be something which was different, but it really didn't amount to very much at all. So I would say that even if you did look at those modern revisions, it's not substantial. The modern translation is very different, not because the text they're using is different, but because the style and their approach is different. And they're using less word-for-word word and more idea-for-idea idea translations. What I'd suggest, though, is that if you can, uh, and I would, like, I would like to come to a discussion on the New Testament manuscripts and listen to someone who was you know, expert at it and ask them questions and uh, bat their around. So maybe collectively we can think about uh, where we go with that. The book I read, and what I'm sort of from memory trying to quote, is F.F. F. Bruce's book called New Testament Documents. It's quite old now. 
uh, it went through many editions. But F.F. Bruce was a well-known uh, textual scholar, and he uh, wrote about these things and uh, you know, explained the arguments to the point where I thought, look, I'm completely satisfied that the New Testament we have is the right one. And the more I study these patterns, the more I study these Bible echoes, the more amazing it is. You know, could, they, they, you know, is that wrong? Is it inaccurate? It's just gloriously wonderful, you know, I think. Could you see that in, in other, uh, you know, if I had Codex Vaticanus, would these patterns become evident? I've no idea, no idea. Certainly, if it leaves a lot of Jeremiah, we might not have Jeremiah chapter 9, might we? Verse 31. <laughs> um, so that's a long-winded answer, but uh, that's, that's what I come to. I see what you're saying. I mean, the whole of the Old Testament scripture is, in a sense, one, one piece, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It says, <laughs> as it is written. It doesn't have to be in, you know, all of it in one place. It's in that which is written. Yes, I think that's, that's a fair point. It's not inaccurate to say as it is written and to go to three different places because that's where it's written. Yeah. So then if our minds are open to that possibility, I think we'll make progress on these areas and not be artificially constrained by these, ah, oh, it's the Septuagint or they made a mistake. There's a, much, there's a much better set of possible explanations open before us. These two things I've got down. One is a quotation that doesn't look right. That's Matthew chapter 27, verse 9, which says, Jeremiah says, but it doesn't look like it's a prophecy from Jeremiah. It looks like it's Zechariah. So how do you explain that? Maybe somebody's already got an explanation. And the other one is, we read Ezekiel 39 this morning. Can we make progress with looking at, uh, you know, does it divide it into subsections? I think it does, and each one is chiastic, so... You know, if you're interested in trying to find something and see if you can see it as well, um, that's something to do. But uh, you may want to uh, relax a little bit and, and just chew over some of these concepts. I, I know it's heavy. You know, what we've done this weekend is I've never done it before. It's not exactly the same as California and Seattle. I covered some of the same ground, but we've done it more intensely here because we've gone, we've pushed it even further and we've used different examples and there's been more opportunity for feedback. So in a sense, it's been heavier and it takes some time to reflect and you know, work out what it is we've been looking at. But at the risk of, of killing you off, we've done three things. Believing the Bible to be verbally inspired, we use that to approach our understanding of Scripture, allowing us to compare Scripture with Scripture, putting our confidences that there's a higher mind, not just a human mind, behind these passages. There's purpose and there's reason behind changes, differences, connections. They're not chance. Secondly, We've compared Scripture with Scripture by looking within sections of Scripture, seeing how this principle of parallelism operates both within Hebrew and the Greek Scriptures. Sometimes it's regular, sometimes it's inverted. But that's what we've looked at. And thirdly, we've looked at how Scripture links to Scripture 
through, call them a quotation, call them an allusion, call them a Bible echo, call them a cross-reference, call them whatever you want to, you know that Scripture makes multiple references to other Scripture. And when you bring those links together alongside each other, marvelous things emerge from the text. That's all we've been trying to do, although we've talked around it and through it and sideways from it. Right? That's what we've been trying to do. It's the sort of thing you don't have to do all the time. Sort of, once you, once you reflect on what is Christadelphian Bible study and realize it's a pretty sound way, by all accounts, academically, it is a sound way to study. Right? That, that we're looking at structural analysis and intertextuality. Right? There are technical terms that can, that can be... Uh, there's intratextuality and intertextuality. That's what we've been looking at, right? I, those are the technical terms for it. It's absolutely what Christadelphians have done instinctively without having to have any highfalutin names for it. It's, it's what we do because it's what the Bible is really teaching us to do. It's how the Lord Jesus Christ thought and spoke and referred. And we've just been thinking about that this weekend to, to, just to make sure that we, you know, not going to be swayed by these other ideas that, that want to displace us from a sound approach to Scripture.